the Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hi, and welcome back to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. My name is Kate Sutter, and I am your host for today. On this episode, we are going to be talking about viral uh, respiratory illness in our community. And there is unfortunately a lot of it at the moment. And I am joined in the studio today by three esteemed guests who are going to help us dive into this topic. Dr. Patty Manning, our Chief of Staff is here. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Um, Dr. Brad Soboleski, who is a pediatric emergency medicine specialist, is here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Dr. Felicia Skaggs Huang, who is a pediatric infectious diseases specialist, is here as well. Thanks for being here, Felicia. Happy to be here. So to get us started, Patty, would you share with us a bit about what infections we're currently seeing in the community? Well, I'll start uh, and give the high level, and then I think uh, Felicia can speak in greater detail. But we're seeing a combination of viruses that um, we often see, uh, but we've probably seen less of during our COVID experience. Uh, And we sometimes see them a little bit later in the year than than we're currently seeing them. So we're seeing RSV, which stands for respiratory syncytial virus. We're seeing flu, which uh, I think everybody hears about, knows that we experience, but again, COVID has changed our flu experience over the past few years. And those are probably the most well-known or the viruses that people have heard of. And then we're seeing a combination of many other viruses. And uh, I won't speak to those specifically, but I'm sure Felicia can add some commentary there. And what about COVID? Is COVID still in the mix in this current situation? Thank you, Kate, because it's it, it's hardly a podcast if we don't talk about COVID, right? Um, <laughs> COVID is still in the mix. COVID has been interestingly low and stable, not, not super low, but low and stable in our region. And that's good. That's a really good thing because it means that kids and their parents and our employees aren't getting as sick with COVID as they were at other points in the pandemic. Um, but it's still out there. And it's hard to estimate really how much there is because there are concerns that people, it's not getting reported as much, people are taking tests at home. Uh, and so it's, there's a good chance that even though I'm saying it's low and stable, that it's very significantly underreported right now. Felicia, anything to add to that or any other viruses that we know are floating around out there right now? I think that we're also seeing a lot of rhinovirus enterovirus, which is a common cold. And I would like to add to Patty's comment about COVID-19 is that a lot of experts are reporting that we'll see um, an increase in that number this winter, but right now it is stable. And what kind of symptoms do these um, viruses each present, um, or what are we seeing in children as symptoms with these viruses? and? Is there any differentiation between them? Brad, do you want to take this one since you're seeing kiddos? I may have seen all three of these last night in the ED. Yeah, so it's it's hard to, to differentiate, you know, especially when the symptoms start. Um, all of the circulating viruses will cause a combination of congestion and runny nose and cough. Kids will be fussy. They won't sleep as well. They won't eat as well. Those are all offshoots of those symptoms. The you know, ultimate 
you know, differentiation for some of the more lower lung symptoms that occur in bronchiolitis doesn't happen until you know four, five, six days into the illness. And so really early on, that congestion, cough, fever, COVID, RSV, influenza can look very similar, especially in someone that's under two years of age. So there have been reports of a quote-unquote early surge of RSV um, in certain parts of the country. Felicia, is there truth to that? Are, are we seeing RSV earlier? And if so, is that surge part of what we're seeing right now? We usually would say that RSV and flu are winter viruses where we have the peak number of cases in December or January. We will sometimes see a few cases here and there this time of year, but those numbers are up significantly compared to pre-pandemic levels. And the media has been using a term, triple-demic. Um, what do we understand about what they mean by this term, and is it something that we're actually experiencing? I, it's a really catchy term. I could imagine it on a T-shirt, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think in practice, it's referring to this circulating numbers of RSV, COVID, and influenza all throughout the community, and just the challenges of differentiating who has what, all three are very easy to spread. You know, they go through daycares, homes, schools, and when all three are at reasonably high levels in the community, you just get a lot of kids with respiratory illnesses all at once. We've also been hearing that some kids are testing positive for more than one of them at a time. Is, is that real? Is that happening? Yes, yeah, and you know, I think that highlights the fact that these illnesses, they overlap like those Venn diagrams, you know, those like circles that intersect with each other. Um, And it could be hard to tell what symptoms are coming from which virus. And, you know, largely it's, it's not important, but the combination of having two illnesses, sometimes those kids are extra miserable. They're not feeding as well. They're very fussy. You know, they're not resting and their symptoms can be that much more challenging to care for. The combination of RSV and flu really can make a baby or toddler pretty miserable. And I think another component to that as well is even before the viruses that we're seeing right now, pre-pandemic, a general pediatrician would often say, you can have a cold almost every month if you're a kid who's in daycare. And sometimes we'll see that children are still shedding that virus even after they might have recovered from their symptoms. So it's sometimes hard to tell, are they experiencing two infections at the same time or are they just still shedding a little bit of virus while they're experiencing a new infection? Yeah, that one illness after another, almost like they line up like books on a shelf. It's, yeah, and it can be really challenging to deal with. And when I experienced that with my kids when they first started daycare, it felt like after the first year or so, they'd been exposed to most everything, and then it kind of got better. Um, I'm curious if the precautions that we all took for all the right reasons during the pandemic have kind of changed the trajectory of what we're seeing now. So in practice, um, we are seeing children with RSV, which is very um, characteristically associated with children under the age of two years. We're seeing it in older children now. So we wonder if these kids that were mostly at home during the first couple of years of their life, when RSV levels were low in the community, they didn't see it. So now we're getting babies, toddlers, and even preschool age kids that are getting the illness concurrently. So I know, Brad, you've said that you've mentioned infants and toddlers um, a couple of times, and infants are particularly susceptible to all of these viruses. Um, 
But you also mentioned bronchiolitis, and that is a really big word that some parents might not understand. Will you tell us a bit about what that is and why it's important right now? Yeah, so when parents first hear about bronchiolitis, they may associate it with bronchitis, which maybe their uncle had, right? But bronchiolitis is a distinct illness of the lower respiratory passages. And so if you imagine the lungs like an upside down tree, like any part of that tree can get affected with an illness. So if you have a, a virus that affects the main trunk or the windpipe, you have croup. That gives you that barky cough like a seal or dog and noise when you breathe in. You can get a viral infection of the bronchi, which are kind of the bigger branches of the tree without leaves. That'll give you that like hacking, junky cough that seems to last forever. And babies and younger children really don't get bronchitis like teenagers and adults do. The smallest airway passages lower down in the lungs are called the bronchioles. And this is the kind of end of that respiratory tree. And in bronchiolitis, you get a viral infection in those tiny airway passages. All throughout the lungs, you get a lot of mucus and swelling, and children will compensate for being sick by breathing faster, using extra muscles. They're also dealing with a lot of secretions, and that'll manifest in frequent bouts of coughing, wheezing, kind of that turbulent, high-pitched airflow that you hear out of the lungs. And you know, I've heard one of my colleagues describe it as a goopy wheeze. It's almost like a, a junky noise. These children are very congested and also noisy and wheezing. And that's what bronchiolitis sounds like, this lower lung viral infection. So how do we treat something like that? That is a wonderful question, and it is something that we are still struggling with. Um, and the simple answer is what we call supportive care. But when you really break that down, you know, we know that kids with bronchiolitis, they are miserable. You know, they're congested, they're cranky, they're not resting well, it can impact their feeding. And so really keeping your child comfortable, well hydrated, and making the, sure that they get adequate rest, those are the pillars of treatment. Um, the main thing that you can do at home is treat symptoms like fever, you know, with medicines like acetaminophen or ibuprofen and manage their congestion. And that is perhaps the most challenging and yet strangely rewarding aspect of taking care of bronchiolitis as a parent, um, especially under six months of age. Kids are, are just super congested and full of nasal secretions. And you suction them out and they seemingly build right back up. It's it's a never-ending task, but it really does have benefits, especially if you suction before feeding, before sleep, and when a child's fussy. One of the major things that can help is using saline or saltwater drops. Putting those in the nose and letting them loosen up the secretions before you suction can really allow you to get more mucus out and increase your yield. It's really hard to do once kids can spend their life upright, and so you get a lot of benefit from suctioning under the age of six months. Sometimes it becomes a two-person job when you're trying to suction an older baby or a toddler, but it still may benefit them. So that was at-home care, and I love that. So if there is a family who has a kiddo that they're like, okay, this is just these symptoms, my kiddo's miserable, suctioning at home can work. I, we don't typically talk about products, but I know there are things on the market like the nose Frida and I think is I think there's like a Neil Med version of it too where you actually like use your mouth to suck the secretions out um, the snot sucker as we affectionately call it in our house like this is a good thing right yes okay they all of the different ways to, to suction work I think people benefit from practice right and so you can get good yield with a bulb sucker you can use a nose Frida 
I swear that it will not go into your mouth when you're sucking it, but you kind of <laughs> have to like practice it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that learning good suctioning technique is absolutely something to ask your pediatrician, your primary care doctor, because it's not intuitive. It's, it's hard to do mm-hmm. and it takes practice. I mean, just like parenting in general. So, oh yeah, Felicia. One important thing that I wanted to call out is that RSV specifically is very different from some of the other viruses out there like influenza where there is treatment for it. So there is not an antiviral that you can offer that you can help shorten the duration of symptoms with as Brad called out. It really is supportive care in time. Yeah. And with bronchiolitis, there have been lots of research done on different therapies that work in other respiratory diseases but don't work in bronchiolitis. Right, so in both asthma and bronchiolitis, you hear wheezing. Mm-hmm. But the reason for wheezing is different in both of these illnesses. So in asthma, you get wheezing because there's tight muscles that are squeezing around the airways. And when you take an inhaled treatment of albuterol, it can relax those muscles and relieve the wheezing. There really aren't tight muscles squeezing the airway passages in bronchiolitis. So in general, giving albuterol to babies with bronchiolitis just makes them mad, but it doesn't really benefit their symptoms. So because you had mentioned that days like four or five of an illness is sometimes when, is usually when these um, more significant bronchiolitis symptoms can can crop up, particularly in infants, um, what are some of those signs that a family should be looking for that it's time to come in and see you or one of your colleagues in the emergency department. Yeah, and I think that the worsening can sneak up on you a little bit, right? Because initially it really does just look like a cold in most cases of bronchiolitis. And sometime around the fourth, fifth, or sixth day, um, you'll see children start to worsen in terms of their breathing. So that will be faster breathing, so their breathing rate will increase. Um, they will start to use additional muscles to breathe. And we call those retractions. That comes from the watching the skin suck in underneath the rib cage. I'm like demonstrating it here over the podcast. But um, you know, ultimately, that's using your belly muscles and sometimes your neck muscles to generate more effort and force to breathe. And in a way, these mechanisms, these things that infants and toddlers do to compensate for the illness are appropriate and reassuring from a medical standpoint. Um, A child that has bronchiolitis, whether it's due to RSV or another virus, should be able to increase their breathing rate, should be able to use additional muscles, should be able to cough and clear secretions, um, because that is how they help deal with and compensate for the illness. Now, that being said, I think if you as a parent are seeing your child having significant difficulty breathing, um, it looks like the child is overwhelmed by the trouble breathing, and this would include very fast rate using extra muscles both below the ribs and above the collarbones. Uh, with that difficulty breathing, they look listless or difficult to arouse. Um, if at any point the child is very pale or have blue-tinged or dusky skin, we call that cyanotic skin. Um, if they're having severe coughing spells where they can't catch their breath or they can't feed because of that. and Certainly, if your child stops breathing or you're concerned that they're having prolonged pauses in their breathing longer than 10 to 15 seconds, those are reasons to seek immediate care. Um, If your child is really struggling to breathe, if they're agitated, if they're hard to arouse, if they're that dusky or cyanotic color, don't attempt to drive them to the hospital. I think it's important at that moment to be worried and concerned and call emergency medical services. So we just talked about it's super important to get a kiddo to the emergency department. 
but the hospital, the emergency departments, all of our urgent cares, we are just busting at the seams right now. Patty, I'm gonna come to you for a minute. What, will you give us just kind of the lay of the land, what, what's happening in healthcare right now? Yeah, thanks Kate for rec recognizing that this is sort of a healthcare across, uh, really across the country phenomenon, not specific to our state or even our region, but um, emergency departments, uh, specifically emergency departments that serve children, um, are frankly overwhelmed right now with the numbers of children who are sick with these viruses that we've been discussing. Some of them are very sick, some of them are not as sick, um, but parents are understandably um, concerned and sometimes panicked by what they've heard about uh, with RSV. And we've even gotten the question, you know, this new virus RSV, which always makes us as pediatricians chuckle because it's not new at all uh, in pediatrics, it's just getting more attention uh, today than it ever has. Uh, and so everybody is, is showing up for care and at rates that we have not seen before. Our emergency departments at both our base and Liberty locations are seeing volumes that we, that frankly are unprecedented. Our urgent care sites are also um, seeing very high volumes and, and it, it pains us tremendously. And I know it pains our colleagues in the emergency department to have so many families show up and have to wait and wait and wait to be cared for. I mean, if we're being very honest here, there are days and nights when the wait can be quite extensive. Uh, that being said, I know our colleagues in emergency medicine do an amazing job of triage and seeing the patients that have to be seen immediately. But that means that some patients will wait longer because their issues may be relatively milder. Um, this is a combination of how many people are showing up for care. There is certainly an impact that we're still feeling in healthcare with regards to our staffing. Um, it's not as bad as it was at earlier points in the pandemic when lots of people had COVID, um, but there are still times when our staffing is not optimal and that impacts our ability to move patients through our system as well. But we are, uh, trust me when I say that we're doing a lot to ensure that we always have um, the amount of staff that we need. Uh, I will also say that we're working very closely with uh, pediatricians in our region and adult care uh, providers in our region, adult primary care uh, systems and pediatric primary care systems to help them understand what we're dealing with. And uh, we have been overwhelmed with the support that we feel from those communities. Uh, pediatricians have recognized uh, the role that they play in managing as much care as they can in their offices and settings. Uh, and even some of our adult colleagues that I've reached out to have said, please let us know how we can help. You helped us during COVID by taking care of some young adult patients. We wanna return the favor and take care of patients who, who we can do so uh, for safely, not babies or young children, but certainly uh, older adolescents and young adults who sometimes show up to see us can be cared for in some of our adult systems. So it is, it's, you know, we don't like to use the word crisis uh, freely, but it, it is a, a different version of the crisis that we've dealt with during uh, different parts of the pandemic. It's quite overwhelming right now. Brad, anything to yeah, add on I, situation I, in the emergency departments? Well, I think first, uh, Patty, your point about the community and, and primary care pediatricians being a, a wonderful resource. Fewer than two to three percent of babies with bronchiolitis need to be admitted in a hospitalized setting. So that means the vast majority of children are safe to be cared for in an outpatient setting. And so we, after seeing a child in the emergency department, rely greatly on the, the primary care team to take care of patients. Um, and again and again, I've watched them rise to the challenge. You know, I, I will call a child's pediatrician at two in the morning and 
you know, they are just happy to talk about how they can help care for the child, and, and we're incredibly thankful for that across the board. Um, I think ultimately the thing that we recognize in the emergency department is that you know, raising a child is, is mostly wonderful, but a small portion of it can be absolutely terrifying as well. And I think when you see your child having difficulty breathing and struggling to breathe, that's incredibly scary, right? And it wasn't until I had, had kids of my own that really sank in that there's that little part in the back of your brain that says, what if the bad thing happens, right? I, I think as a, as a parent watching your, your child cough frequently, be labored with their breathing, not feeding well, those thoughts of, you know, what if they run out of energy? What if they tire out? What if they stop breathing in the middle of the night, right? Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately addressing that you are concerned about those things and talking with your pediatrician or with the emergency department or urgent care provider can be really important, right? We know that fortunately the majority of children that get bronchiolitis really do compensate for their illness well. They deal with it and don't require hospitalized treatment, you know, IV fluids, or stays in the intensive care unit. There are some babies that are most at risk, and so if you are in one of these situations, I think early, you know, contact with your pediatrician or evaluation is important. So that includes premature babies that are especially under two to three months of age, or in general, just babies that are in their first month of life, children with chronic lung disease or complex lung disease, um, or those babies that were born with congenital heart disease, especially the kind that required surgery or operative interventions, those are the type of children that are most at risk for bronchiolitis. And they, especially the tiny babies, don't seem to mount the same response that older children do. Um, older children, as we noted earlier, they breathe fast, they cough, they use their extra muscles, and you know they're able to deal with the symptoms um, in a way that you know, helps them stay hydrated and helps parents monitor their symptoms. Very small babies or very young premature infants can't mount that similar response. And so their breathing is impacted more significantly and they can have pauses in their breathing. Um, they can get much sicker in a significantly quicker time frame. And I think if you're in one of those situations where say you have an older child that goes to daycare and they get RSV and you have a newborn infant at home, even if your infant is just a little bit congested and not feeding well, RSV is spread so easily mm -hmm. that I'd encourage you to, to seek evaluation by your pediatrician. So understanding that the emergency departments um, have so many patients right now, um, we know that there are some kids who present there who would be safe to wait until the next day to see their primary care provider. Um, what advice can we give to families who are maybe making that decision about coming in right now or waiting until the next day and how would we guide them toward you know the right way to make that decision you know I, that's a wonderful question i think first we will never turn anyone away right I, I think if you are worried about your child we are there for you right you know your kid best whether they're two months of age or you know 12 years old right mm -hmm. hopefully 12 year olds aren't getting bronchiolitis that would be a very interesting respiratory season so I, you know, but the 12-year-olds might still have an injury yeah. that they're like, They don't like to Do get I suctioned, though. Yeah. No, they don't no. like to. No. It's, yeah, that's from personal experience. <laughs> yeah, so we, we, but tr I, we I trust But I think in general, yeah. right, mm -hmm. if, if somebody is trying to decide to come in, whatever the case may be, um, who can help them make that decision? Yeah. I, I think your 
primary care doctor Mm -hmm. or somebody from your primary care team is a great source of advice. Mm -hmm. And whether that is the nurse on the call line or the pediatrician on the call line or your family doctor, uh, they can all really offer advice on whether or not it's okay to wait until the morning to come into the office or to seek care that night. You know, I think ultimately if, if a child is really working hard to breathe, so a respiratory rate that is faster than 60 to 70 breaths per minute, Mm-hmm. and that's impacting their hydration. So they're drinking less than half of their usual volume. Those are situations in where you know, it's a pretty good idea to, to get that child evaluated in the emergency department, mm-hmm. but it can be hard. And so when you're uncertain, you know, don't worry about you know, bothering you know, your doctor. I think that's what they're there for, right? Give them a call and, and seek out their advice. And Patty, coming to you for just a second, um, I, that giving them a call, I, I know that they all have those after hours numbers, but sometimes it's hard to make the decision to say, yes, I need help at two o'clock in the morning. That's what we want them to do, right? We want, uh, we, we always want families to feel like they have access to information to make the best decision on behalf of their child, whether that's calling their pediatrician, talking to somebody on call, um, looking at resources that have been put out recently by the Ohio uh, chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics that help people that like decision guidelines around if your child has this you could consider watching them at home if they have that you might consider bringing them into the urgent care there are many tools now available to help families uh, make some of these decisions and then I'll, I'll make a plug for our own virtual urgent care um, we always encourage families to talk with their pediatrician first um, but the virtual urgent care is an option a, a much more convenient option for a lot of families to have access to a, a medical provider uh, who is trained in pediatrics to, and who can see their child on camera and help them make a decision about whether or not they need to come in. And I, the, the feedback that we've gotten on that modality, when families say, oh my goodness, it saved us so much time. We've used it so many times. They helped us understand that we didn't need to come in or that we did need to come in. Um, we, we have been very thankful for that uh, technology that um, has been in place now for a few years. It's more important now than ever when when it's actually advantageous to stay home if you can and not come in. Um, I will also make a plug for this, that if you do wind up making the decision to come in, um, uh, we're telling a lot of families this, we're telling primary care providers to tell families this, you know, be prepared. Be prepared that it could be a long wait. Bring snacks, bring diapers, bring, you know, sometimes the decision to come to the emergency room means you're throwing somebody in the car and you're just going. Mm-hmm. Um, but be aware that it could be a while. And uh, again, we wish that wasn't the case, but I, I want to be very reality-based with everyone and just say sometimes it is the case that you're going to be waiting a while, and uh, and we, we want you to be comfortable, and we can help with that here, but we know that sometimes your own snacks and your own blankets and comfy clothes are uh, make, a, make a long wait a little bit easier. We always say device chargers. And device chargers, yeah. <laughs> Bring your device chargers, especially if there's an iPad for the kiddo. Um, Felicia, will you talk to me about flu for a few minutes? Because um, I was peeking at some numbers earlier, and those flu numbers are significant. Um, Maybe not as high as we're going to get, but maybe they will be. Um, What are we seeing? Brad has charts. Um, Charts are fun. Charts are fun. Um, what are what are we seeing with flu? What is the kind of population that we're we're seeing this in most? So I think similar to RSV, flu usually peaks in the winter, but we start to see some cases in the fall. And just like RSV, we're seeing more volume than we have in previous pre-pandemic seasons. 
And Brad has his charts, right? Where he's pulling up, I think, the CDC data. Oh, he's pulling up our local data too to show that our, our numbers are increased from previous seasons. And I think it's an important thing to mention that um, even though we are seeing more cases, there are ways to prevent the flu. So I think it's an important opportunity for us as, as parents and pediatricians. A lot of us have fallen behind on our kids' vaccinations because of the pandemic where it was harder to get in to see your doctor or other things came up. So this is your chance to go get your flu shot if your child has not yet been vaccinated to help prevent them from getting sick in the first place. And that was a perfect segue to what else can we do to help keep our families safe? So most respiratory viruses are transmitted through droplets and through contact with infected surfaces. We've learned a lot about prevention as parents because of the pandemic. So what are some things we can do? First of all, wash your hands often. So 20 seconds with soap and water or using an alcohol-based sanitizer. Try to avoid touching that T-zone because your eyes, nose, and mouth, those are definitely a portal for virus to get in. Um, it's hard sometimes to do that with young children, right? Because they love to touch each other and touch their own faces. But I think that we've all gotten a lot more comfortable with keeping your hands on your lap, keep your hands to yourself, uh, wash your hands after you're touching with things. Um, stay away from sick people. And you can you can blame me. Parents say, you can say, you heard it from me, Felicia. If grandma's sick and she wants to come over and visit your new baby, that's a, that's a no-go. We don't want them to transmit virus to your young infant or other family members. Or if you have a child who's sick and you have a family member who is in a nursing home or has a compromised immune system, you don't want the, to bring that virus to them. And uh, if you are coughing or sneezing, use good cough etiquette. So cough into your elbow, wash your hands right away, throw away that tissue. And uh, last but not least, you know, get up to date on your vaccinations, whether it be COVID-19 or the flu, to prevent yourself from getting sick. And these precautions are going to help with every single one of these viruses that we've talked about today, right? Oh, yes. yes. And wearing a mask isn't a bad idea. You know, it's um, we've pivoted a little bit in our mask-wearing messaging uh, around here, at least, um, because it does. It isn't just about COVID. We, we learned so much, as Felicia said, about how masks provide protection. And so, um, you know, as pediatricians, I think for a long time we're going to be recognizing the benefit of wearing a mask. If you if you are sick, if you're out and about, I am begging and urging the folks that I know who have new babies in their households to please, you know, I really want to emphasize the message that Felicia had. Those babies are the most vulnerable. Um, people need to wash their hands. If they have any anything that they're concerned about in terms of an exposure and illness, they should wear a mask. If they have to see that baby, if they can wait on seeing the baby, that's even better because we really want to keep those babies safe. I think we learned that honestly we were probably doing a lot of things suboptimally before the pandemic, right? And I think now I actually love that I don't get sick from my patients at all anymore because I'm always wearing a mask and eye protection. It's just my kids who make me sick, right? <laughs> and I think that's a great opportunity for us in general in pediatrics to have a different threshold for wearing masks, uh, whether it be uh, with providing care depending on what your role is and where you work or being out and about in public. I think it's another great low cost, low risk way to protect you and your family. Yeah, parents, um, you should know that if you seek care in one of our emergency departments or urgent cares, we are all wearing masks there. And that's both to protect other children from the spread of illness, because you may be seeking care with your toddler with congestion and cough and difficulty breathing, but there could be a child down the hall that is, you know, receiving care because they have cancer or are getting chemotherapy or have a compromised immune system or 
you know, sometimes we just see the other regular things like broken arms and lacerations and appendicitis. You don't want to pick up a cold while you're there. That's not a good parting gift. Nope. Nobody wants to take a cold home with them. And that was an incredibly important um, point that you just made, Brad, that we are still 100% masked for employees and families in our spaces. Um, Patty, anything to add there? Um, we get this question a lot because some other healthcare systems have actually made the decision to, to be a little bit more uh, liberal with masking and have taken mask uh, requirements down. But as a children's hospital, we feel so strongly that uh, this is the season when our youngest patients are the most vulnerable. And so for the foreseeable future, we'll be wearing masks. We'll reassess at the end of respiratory system uh, season, rather. It, it's not uh, forever, as everybody's always afraid of, but it will be for right now. It couldn't be more poorly timed, in my opinion, to take masks off. Well, and it isn't even just about COVID anymore. It's about all of these other things. Um, we have answered all of the questions that I had prepared for us. Um, Patty, any closing thoughts? You know, I'll make one pitch on the, because um, we didn't speak to this specifically, but we are getting a lot of people coming to the emergency room just because they'd like their children to be tested for RSV, uh, specifically sometimes for flu. And we've talked a little bit about how it's interesting to know what virus a child has, but above a certain age and really almost at any age, it's not necessary for their care. The care is all the same. It's supportive care. Uh, and so um, we're really encouraging families to work with their primary care providers and, and really weigh the pros and cons of coming in just for testing because there are people who are waiting many hours just for testing and it's really, it's not necessary, especially if your child's only mildly ill. It will only just, again, make you wait for hours and get frustrated and uh, it might delay care for other children who are more sick. So thanks for helping us out there. Yeah, there's something that you learn very early in medical training, like it's a clinical diagnosis. And so what that term means is that by listening to signs and symptoms, taking the history of, of how the child became ill and how they're progressing and doing a physical examination, you can make the diagnosis. So if you know that there's a lot of RSV in the community and a child, especially an older baby or toddler, has the symptoms of bronchiolitis, well, it's probably RSV. And because there's no specific treatment, doing that test does not affect what you do in the long term. And so ultimately, yes, the temptation is there to, to test. There are certainly circumstances where it can be valuable. Uh, but, you know, you should also feel comfortable in your ability to convey your child's symptoms and your medical care provider's ability to make that diagnosis without necessarily doing a nasal swab. Brad, in your closing, will you go over for us again, um, not respiratory related, but other um, symptoms or things going on with kids that earn a fast trip to the emergency department, thinking like a bone that you can see. We don't pass go, collect $200, we go straight to the emergency department if you can see a bone. What are some of the others? Yeah, that, that list can be very long. Um, and in general, we, again, we trust parents to, to define what they feel is an emergency. But yes, an obvious fracture in which the child is in a significant amount of pain. Um, if a child has severe abdominal pain, um, if a child has lost consciousness, if they're suffering a seizure, if they have significant burns, you know, I think these are all situations where emergency care, um, you know, is really necessary at that point. Um, also, situations of significant injury, you know, where a child sustains a head injury and their mental status is different or they're difficult to arouse, um, if they're involved in a significant car accident or if they're struck by a motor vehicle. Um, these are all situations in which the ER is absolutely the appropriate place to go. 
in our main emergency department and our Liberty Emergency Department, when you arrive at the greeter desk, we also provide information based on your symptoms and your level of concern from your child, whether seeking care in our urgent care or emergency department is appropriate. So you don't necessarily have to make that decision beforehand, um, but we have community urgent care sites. And so I think in communication with your primary care doctor and using some of the materials listed on our children's website can help you make an informed decision about what would be appropriate to go to the emergency care uh, site versus an urgent care. Thank you. I just wanna make sure that the long wait times don't deter people who definitely need yeah. to be here. So we, thanks we for running through that. We appreciate your patience. We are there for you if you need us. Yep. Um, and I think still the the most important thing that we need to do in the emergency department is make it clear why we're doing what we're doing. You should understand what's going on with your child. Have your questions answered and just let us know what you're really worried about what you're most concerned about. I think some of the most rewarding interactions for, for us in the ED and urgent care are getting to answer those questions that make parents you know, feel scared and providing that education and reassurance. It really goes a long way. And if there is a family who is waiting, they can always ask if they think their child's getting worse. Yeah, we're, we're always there, right? Yep. So once you check in, you're not just waiting forever. I think if there's a change in your child's status, we have nurses and other providers up in the main lobby and in the triage area that can reassess children as symptoms evolve. Perfect, thank you. Felicia, final thoughts from you? I think RSV and the flu have been getting a lot of attention because everyone has been so focused on COVID-19, but I want families to feel reassured that pediatricians are very experienced with handling these viruses. The vast majority of children, they might be miserable for a week or so, but they'll recover and then be running around climbing the walls, driving you crazy within a week or so, and they will do well in the long term. So I hope even though you know it's a scary time for a lot of families that their kids will recover and do great. Yeah, I still recount the days when my sons had bronchiolitis and I tell them, well, now my 10-year-old can name all the Pokemon, which he is very proud of. And so they, they do recover, but in the moment it can be very overwhelming. Uh, but that's a great point, you know, the, you know, thinking about how they recover and do well in the long run. And that's what many of us joy about pediatrics is that the kids do get better. Thank you to each of you for your time today and for your wisdom. Um, I hope that we have reached some, that we will reach some families um, who will breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief knowing that they know better now what to do if their kiddo ends up feeling crummy with one of these viruses. So again, appreciate your time. Thank you all for being here. And you've been listening to the Young and Healthy Podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode of Young and Healthy was recorded on November 8th, 2022. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. The wonderful Stephen Grieco created our theme music and the even more wonderful Symphony Fair Harris produced this episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.